Hello, I'm Sarah Kapalak and this is In the News from the Irish Times, where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today, one man's story of how 9-11 tore his family apart. Twenty years ago, Mark Clifford lost his sister and niece in unimaginable circumstances. One of the first names that came out literally to us was that Ruth was involved in the, as a passenger in one of the planes. Mark was at a friend's funeral in Dublin when news of the attack on the Twin Towers broke. There was a reception back in the St. Stephen's Green Club in Dublin and uh, we were having some refreshments there and there was quite a few people in the bar at that point watching TV. I saw an explosion coming from one of the towers uh, and so I asked the person next to me, is this this a new movie or something? They said, no, no, this is live from the United States. At first, Mark was worried about his brother Ron, who he knew had a meeting at the World Trade Centre that morning. I picked up my phone and tried to ring my brother. I couldn't get through to him. I had this eerie feeling, so I decided to leave immediately and start heading for for Cork. But when they finally spoke, it was his sister Ruth, her friend Paige, and his four-year-old niece Juliana who he began to worry about. Ruth had been dropped off at Logan Airport with Paige and Juliana. They were heading for a Deepak Chopra seminar in L.A., and they were going to bring Juliana to Disney World. I asked um, a friend of mine who had contacts with the Boston Globe to see could they pull in any information for for us about Ruth, and they were able to find out that Ruth was definitely on a manifest. And I found out that Juliana was with Ruth, and that that kind of destroyed um, any sort of hope that I had for the two of them to be alive, you know. Mark, can you take me back to that moment? Where were you when you got the news that your sister Ruth and her four-year-old daughter Juliana were on that second plane that hit the Twin Towers? I was driving, making my way to Cork to be with my family. Where was I? I I really had to stop uh, and take uh, take a couple of breaths. I I was um, losing myself in a very surreal moment. It was, it was, the whole day was a nightmare and I was just hoping that I might wake up from it. It was, it was surreal and it was getting worse by the minute. When you got back home that day, how did the rest of that day play out in Cork for you and your family around you? So it, it was dark by the time I got back to Cork. Um, I went immediately over to my brother's house to spend time with my brother and his family. At that stage, there was a bit of a press invasion into into our lives just to basically get some information as to what our family's involvement was with the 9-11 story. Um, but... <sighs> Uh, you know, we were there for each other and, you know, we'll always be there for each other, uh, you know, around the, the tragedy that, that happened on 9-11. Can you tell me a bit about Ruth? What kind of person was she? What was your relationship like with her? Our relationship was wonderful. We, Ruth, um, my parents split up when I was about nine years of age. Ruth went to the United States with my mother um, and Ruth kind of finished off her education in the United States. But Ruth was uh, really 
um, loved her brothers and came home very regular to, regularly to us. And we, we shared some very, very special times together, quality time. Uh, in latter years, we sh- came out we on holidays to uh, the, to where Ruth lived. She lived in a very privileged uh, shore-based house where we spent lots of good quality time with Ruth and Juliana. And they came to Ireland very regularly on holidays as well and shared some very special times with us. And what was she doing with herself? What was her career and what kind of life was she leading? Ruth uh, lived in Boston and was a, a businesswoman. She uh, owned two beauty spas, one in a suburb called Newton in Boston. She also owned a beauty spa in Newark. She gave all that up then very recently because her husband David got quite ill. And she, like Ruth puts, used to put her all into everything. She put all her energies into trying to get David better. David, her husband, has subsequently passed away probably seven years ago. So that's the whole little family unit gone, unfortunately. Tell me about Juliana, beautiful little four-year-old girl. What was she like and how much time did you spend with her? I spent the month of August with her. And we, we again, we had some very good family quality time. And uh, Ruth's nieces and nephews uh, regularly visited and became babysitters for Juliana. Juliana was a very graceful little child, very happy. And uh, Ruth and herself, uh, it was just a, a wonder to see. Juliana was a, a magical gift to Ruth at 40 years of age. So it was it was really beautiful to watch the two of them together and to so yeah she was a, just a lovely little four year old. Can you talk to me a bit about the um, the past twenty years, the intervening years since the attacks? How has your family and how have you lived with the grief of losing Ruth and Juliana? I mean, everyone continues to be aware of nine eleven. We all remember where we were that day, but for someone in your position who lost two people you cared so deeply for, does their absence ever get any easier? Their absence will never get easier. I mean, as time goes on and and in difference to a lot of other events and tragedies and lots of tragedies happen to people, it is, you're reminded upon this tragedy, you know, every anniversary of the tragedy. I myself have, I'm a volunteer with the, the Samaritans in Cork City and I used uh, some of the experiences I have to get over tragedy to help other people with their trials and tribulations through true life. And the one thing I have learned from that is that there is no one person has a monopoly on, on grief and, and strife in their life. Juliana, if she was alive today, she'd be in her early 20s. Do you find yourself th- imagining the life she could have had? I do. I do quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, she'd be a, a, a vibrant 24 year old, you know, coming over to visit her cousins. And and, I, and I'm absolutely sure that Ruth would have just made sure that Juliana had regular trips to Ireland and would basically put a, a, an enormous Irish slot into her world and uh, try and make her make her heritage be probably one of the most foremost and loved part of Juliana. 
Do you talk often with your own family? You've mentioned that every year there's this anniversary, which is undoubtedly extremely difficult. But at other points in the year, do you speak to your own family, reflect on on the on the lives that Ruth and Juliana had? We do. Yeah, we're, we're a very close family. Um, and what uh, one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that nine months after 9-11, we received Ruth's remains. So we were able to have our own private ceremony you know so we have in in cork ruth buried and we have a place to visit as a family and you know i'm i'm told by the caretakers off the graveyard outside that it's very much requested that people come into the graveyard in cork that's in finber's graveyard on the glashian road and people ask to see the 911 grave and people come up and pay their respects at that grave and it, it, it must help other people as well what is your sister's legacy, do you think? What did she leave behind for the rest of you? She left a presence of love and understanding and a softness that we will take on forever. Everyone's sister is the best sister in the world, but Ruth was a very good and caring person to us and uh, we miss her deeply. We all talk about 9-11 as being the day that changed the world, but how did the events of that Tuesday back in 2001 change your life? It changed it changed all our lives in many ways. We still probably need a couple of answers from the American authorities as to why. And uh, there are still people who are incarcerated in Guantanamo Bay on the pretext that there is going to be a trial, namely probably Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. There isn't any sort of political will to have any sort of trial organised. Yet the, a lot of the, the bereaved from 9-11 really wish to have some sort of papers uh, released as to what were the Americans' thoughts and what were the, the Secret Service's beliefs attached to the 9-11 attacks. On that note, finally, I'd like to ask you about the legacy of 9-11 itself and the subsequent US mission for revenge, which, they, which was carried out against al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Do you feel that justice was done for your family through that legacy of revenge? I believe that we have our own problems in this country. We had people who who planted bombs, namely even the OMA bombing, in, in the name of an ideology, right? And they, you know, it, these people didn't have beards and you can't see them on the street. So it's not, it, it's an ideology, it's, it's a fanaticism. But, you know, we can't really be the judge of man's inhumanity to man. It, it, it's it's going to happen. We have to criticise it when it does, and we have to stand up against it. So any form of fanaticism and anyone who thinks their ideology is better than your ideology needs to be challenged. Uh, what the Americans did up to that point, they were a very deeply hurt nation. The Muslim world, is every Muslim a bad Muslim? They're not. There's some, you know, there, there are people who are fanatics. And I just think love is a much stronger uh, emotion than hate, you know. And that's really, you know, at the end of the day, much stronger. Yeah. Coming up. Paddy Smith, who reported on 9-11 from Washington for the Irish Times on how the war on terror transformed America and the world. 
Paddy Smith is the former Washington and Europe correspondent for the Irish Times. Paddy, you were in Washington, D.C. the day of the 9-11 attacks. What do you remember about the immediate aftermath and then reporting for the Irish Times in the days and weeks that followed? I was the Washington correspondent of the Irish Times at that stage with my colleague Conor O'Clearly in New York reporting on, on Wall Street. Uh, his apartment was right beside the World Trade Centre and his first call came to me that morning at 8.47. He said, I think there's something you should see. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Gumble. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We watched on television and agreed that it was something that I should be reporting and that I should come down to New York. So you have no idea right now? Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. By 9.03, however, the second attack had happened and it was absolutely abundantly clear that this was not an accidental uh, event, but a deliberate attack. Why do you say that was definitely on purpose? It's because it just it just flew straight into it. By 9.37, the Pentagon had been hit by another plane and my plans to travel to New York were up in the air because Washington seized up. Traffic became completely impossible and transport seemed to be collapsing uh, all around. There was no way I was going to get to, to New York. It was a bit like being in the middle of a movie. The time frame and the events all on screen in front of us and evolving at a speed uh, that would have made any Hollywood blockbuster perfectly respectable. This is something that even the people who were in, in the scene seem to remember, having this, this sense of unreality of having seen some of this before and and being part of this uh, horror movie, disaster movie. Oh my God, there it goes! That is extraordinary. The South Tower, the World Trade Center, has collapsed. Again, tell me, how long ago was it that you saw this? By early afternoon, it was already clear that a, a fourth plane was involved and came down. And within minutes, the transcripts of the desperate calls of its passengers were being broadcast. Uh, it became clear that they had been alerted to what had happened in, in uh, New York and in Washington and uh, dis decided that they were going to take back the plane. They did so. Then we had a presidential broadcast uh, and we began to see guilt being uh, attributed to, to the various parties. And the question is immediately going to become what kind of response does the United States launch? You have the usual suspects, but you've got to have, in the eyes of the world, some pretty good evidence to point the finger at somebody and, and, and launch an attack. I was trapped in Bethesda and I found myself uh, trying to follow and report uh, in the same way that everybody else around the world was doing it, uh, was watching it on, on, on television at the same time I was there reporting it. My job was to do the political analysis, to put, try and put it in a bigger picture. And I, I have this strong recollection of, of a sort of brain freeze occurring to me as I tried to write my words coming with enormous difficulty. The world was watching and how could I... I could, how could I add to what they could already see in front of themselves? And I remember most clearly that I wrote 
that America's retaliation would be terrible and uh, would be swift. And that indeed was to be the case. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Paddy, before 9-11, the US intelligence community already knew about bin Laden and al-Qaeda, who had been behind terror attacks on US military and embassies overseas. But how much of a surprise was this attack on home soil? By August, the name of bin Laden had been mentioned some 36 times in National Security Council briefings to the president. Bush was sick and tired of it. The head of the latest memo in August was Bin Laden wants to target US, but Bush wasn't having any of it. All right, he said, you've covered your ass, he told the official who was advising him. The threat was never taken seriously. The intelligence that the Americans were getting was very general, non-specific. There was absolutely no ability to penetrate the terrorist groups uh, like al-Qaeda. And the intelligence services were deeply dysfunctional and divided. There's an interesting analogy with what happened uh, in Pearl Harbor uh, many years before. The Navy and the Army at that stage were in bitter dispute over who was responsible for the surveillance of the Japanese fleet's signals. And uh, eventually they agreed to do the surveillance on alternate days. Similar things were happening in respect of the American intelligence agencies like the CIA, FBI and NSA, uh, none of whom knew what the other was doing or knew what the other knew indeed. Uh, The Defence Department was preoccupied, as was Bush and the Bush administration, by a different sort of threat, a different sort of enemy. Uh, For them, Star Wars and missile defence was the critical issue. They didn't really believe in the terrorism threat. The truth is, and it it could be seen, for example, in airport security, the Americans were very preoccupied by the security levels at international airports around the world, but didn't uh, do anything about domestic airport security. And indeed, the public was completely unprepared for the attack when it came. People often describe 9-11 as the day that changed the world. How true do you think that statement is? How much has our world been shaped by those four planes that crashed that day? What is still remarkable is that 19 men were able on one day to turn a page of history, to, to shift the geopolitics of the, on, on a global scale uh, to the extent that, that, that they did. Quite extraordinary. This multiplier effect of such a small application, relatively speaking, of force on the economy, on the politics, on the military security situation on a global scale was quite remarkable. And yes, uh, 9-11 changed the world as, as we knew it. Domestically, of course, the US went on to a war footing. It completely transformed its its security operations. Uh, the, the Department of Homeland Security was established and the work of the CIA and the FBI was turned entirely over in the initial period to the pursuit of, of uh, terrorists and other al-Qaeda uh, agents. Of course, there weren't other al-Qaeda agents in, in, in on the ground hiding in hiding. Uh, there was an incredible economic aftershock and a psychological one. I, I remember visiting the, the uh, home of a, of a friend uh, who lived just opposite the World Trade Center in, in uh, uh, Brooklyn. And uh, she talked about how even her small girl of two uh, 
looked at where the World Trade Center once was and cried because she didn't understand what had happened, but she had a sense of the violence that had been wrought. And there was a deep sense of insecurity through, throughout uh, um, America. You saw the, the growth and uh, of Islamophobia in a number of different countries. You saw the seeds of the Arab Spring being being sown and the Syrian war that followed that with migration uh, on a massive scale, directly arising from uh, the fallout from 9-11. You saw in Europe the rise of populism, of Trump, uh, Brexit even, uh, a new breed of autocratic leaders emerging and being tolerated uh, around the world. And it, it became clear that uh, although 9-11 didn't cause all of these events directly, it, it was a catalyst for really profound changes in, in global politics. What about now, 20 years on? Less than a month ago, we watched horrific images of people falling from US military aircrafts as they took off from Kabul airport in Afghanistan. Images that were hugely reminiscent of people falling from the Twin Towers in 2001. What, if anything, has humanity learned from the tragedy of 9-11? In the wake of the Cold War, one historian had the nerve to suggest that the decisive victory of Western values, of capitalism, meant the end of history, as he called it. He argued that uh, conflict would no longer tear us apart uh, because there were no ideological uh, divisions of, of a sufficient kind, and that we could look forward to a period of relative peace and when Western values, i.e. capitalism and, and uh, conservative economic uh, policies, would simply uh, predominate on a, on a global scale. And he could not have been more wrong and 9-11 exposed that fallacy more than any uh, other. It was at the end of a period of the supremacy of the United States, uh, the lone superpower now. Uh, America could no longer go it alone, could no longer de uh, depend on its own might alone. It needed al allies. It uh, ushered in a period of shock to, to Western complacency, which has had profound political consequences, as I, as I have said. We saw, as I've mentioned, uh, the rise of China, uh, the rise of political Islam. Each of these important geopolitical uh, events compounded by the challenge of, of uh, climate change, which we have still not been able to address. So 9-11 did definitely turn a page in, in the history of uh, the, the, the world. And above all, uh, it exposed, I think, the idea that unilateralism was a way that could, could resolve problems. It created a need, a desperate need, uh, which we still haven't managed to, to meet, of uh, coming together through international forums like the United Nations to deal with the problems of the world, whether they're to do with the environment, to do with climate change, or to do with uh, geopolitics. That's all for today. You can read more coverage from our reporters about the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on irishtimes.com. In the News will be back on Monday. Mm -hmm.